Hi, and welcome to this session on evidence-based cybersecurity management. I'm Keith Wilson. I'm the Director of Cybersecurity Education for Attack IQ, and I've got two great guests with me today that are going to talk to me more about evidence-based cybersecurity management, see if they can help me understand it a little bit more, and maybe help you some uh, as well. So today we have Vicente Canal uh, from Lotto Land. He's the CISO for Lotto Land, and then the CISO for Mount Sinai South Nassau, Chris Friends. Uh, guys, welcome to the session. Welcome to Purple Hats. So glad to have you here. I want to start by level setting for our audience. Um, and let, let's first talk about what evidence-based cybersecurity management means to you. And then we'll dive into some of those and, and talk more uh, about those key points. So, Vicente, let's start with you. Can you tell me what cybersecurity, uh, what evidence-based cybersecurity management means to you? Well, to me, it means uh, an alternative uh, to traditional-based uh, uh, cybersecurity management. So it would be to apply the same techniques uh, that have uh, le led to such incredible improvements, for example, in the air travel industry or in medicine, whereas we've learned from our mistakes and we've used uh, better and better methods over time uh, towards creating a better way to do medicine and to do aircraft, uh, air travel, for example. And there are certain things um, that I would like to see in cybersecurity management that I am, I am not seeing at the moment, and I cannot blame it on traditional-based cybersecurity management. I would like to see fewer and fewer and less severe cybersecurity incidents. I would like to see fewer and fewer frameworks that work better and better and they have more people using them. And I would like to see that if there's an incident, it's because someone made a mistake applying one of these successful frameworks and a common language. But I am not seeing that, which indicates, makes me think that traditional-based cybersecurity management is not working and we need an alternative. Okay. And Chris, same question to you. What do you, what do you think of evidence-based cybersecurity management? What does this mean to you? I definitely agree with everything I just said, and I'll build that, on that a little bit. I think it's about making security much more of a science than it is an art. Yeah. It's kind of like an art today where people take their best guesses at what they think will work, but no one's really taking the time to actually measure and see what actually works. And I think it's a big push to make security a lot more empirical, to actually ensure that the um, controls you're putting in place and everything else actually work. And it's about making security much more measurable than it is today. And I think the like the recent changes for the NIST password standard are a great example. For years, NIST recommended uh, changing passwords on a regular basis. But when somebody sat down and actually quantita quantitatively looked at that and measured it, it turns out that they now recommend a long password that you change infrequently because um, the prior recommendation was actually making things less secure because people tended to pick simple, um, easy to remember passwords and they were actually undermining security with the recommendation. And I think the more we begin to look and measure security, the more we see a lot of the practices that we use today um, might not be as good as we think they are. And I think it's also a move away from just compliance alone based approaches. I think a lot of security today is done by checkboxes. So you might have a compliance standard that says have a firewall, but having a firewall is a big difference from having all the proper egress filtering, all the other policies for locking down DNS and all the things you need in the firewall. So I think it's much more about not just having a control, but ensuring that the controls you have actually are operating with a high level of efficacy. 
Okay, so I, I heard I heard a couple different points come up between between the two of you. The the main sort of theme that I heard throughout all of this is we're measuring, right? We're we're looking at actual data. It's not just a hmm, what which way is the security wind blowing today? We're looking at data and we're making our decisions based on that. Um, and then on top of that, Chris, you you brought up a great point. There is we're ver- verifying that we're we're validating that whatever we we implemented or thought was going to work. We're actually testing it to see if it does. Is, does that sound right? Am I am I missing anything there? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And actually, um, what about what I would say is that what we do is to use data to understand if we are meeting success criteria. So whatever control you implement, you test it, but you don't test it and then kind of uh, have a meditation. Uh, with your colleagues thinking, oh, do, did we like the test? No, before you do the test, you decide what is going to consider the control as successful or unsuccessful. And if the control is not successful, then you either to, you have to fix it or deprecate it. So I would say that data is essential uh, and that's the way uh, the instrument you use to effectively use success criteria to improve the security of your organization. Now you you talked about success criteria and when we were when we were preparing for the session you brought up a good point too and that's how do you define accepted risk right if i if i accept the risk for something and i test it and it fails is it a success or is it a failure exactly um, yeah chris do you do you have any thoughts on how how do you treat accepted risk in in this uh mindset of uh, evidence-based cybersecurity management. If I, if I assume a risk is, if I go, okay, well, there's nothing I can do and I can accept that. If I if I test the control and it fails, is that a success or failure in my program? I think it depends on what the risk is. And I think the, um, just to build on what Vicente was saying earlier, I think one of the important things is to actually take the time to test. Um, I have a like, really great story just to kind of go back to the, the prior question for a second, is one of the things I did is I got into a breach and attack simulation back in 2015. And one of the really interesting things was, is the hospital I worked at at the time, we had a segmented network. It was segmented by department, which going back to 2015, most hospitals had no segmentation at all. So we were not only compliant, we exceeded compliance standards, but we actually took the time to measure it by doing a uh, ransomware simulation where we took the ICAR test string and attempted to copy it to all the different computers in the organization. One of the things we learned is that our segmentation worked and it worked well. But doing the exercise, we also learned that if we were to actually have an attack like that and we were to lose a whole department, it was still going to be disastrous to the operations of the organization. And that got us looking at more of a zero trust approach to security. So I think to kind of tie that back to the accepted risk question is I think it's still important to measure and validate because the risk you think you're accepting may actually be greater than the risk you actually are accepting. And I think um, the more evidence-based approaches you know, tie in that way as well. So through your testing, you actually found out you, you had what was essentially an unknown unknown occur, right? Like you you assumed that your segmentation would hold and work, and it did for the most part, but you tested and found some other things you weren't necessarily expecting to find as part of that accepted risk, correct? Correct. Yes. Is, um, so we were segmented, the segmentation worked, but it turns out the segmentation wasn't fine-grained enough to actually meet our needs but we had no way of really knowing that until we actually tested that. So it was a risk that we could have easily just accepted because, hey, we're segmented, we're you know, more than compliant, we're exceeding standards. But when we actually went down to test, it turns out it wasn't an acceptable risk. And I think um, the evidence-based controls can play a big part in terms of what risks you accept and what risks you don't accept because it, you get a more feel for what your actual risk you're accepting actually is. 
because what you think you're accepting, what you're actually accepting, you don't really know. And so you actually go ahead and test. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. You know, whenever we talk about uh, testing, whether it's bass testing or any sort of testing, we always think of it in terms of just verifying, right? Like I'm verifying the controls that I've set up. I've never even really considered it in terms of, well, this might expose something I never even thought of before. And that's that's a, a really great and kind of powerful story, Chris. Um, that's that's a really good point. I like that. Um, so is there, is there a model to do this at, at any sort of high level to do uh, evidence-based cybersecurity management? Well, I don't think we have yet uh, what you could call like a standard, but it's clearly uh, an application of methods that have been already been used in many other industries. Uh, so it's, I, don't, I don't think there's any difficulty at all. Um, back in the day, I created um, an information security standard published by the Open Group called OISN3, and uh, it took me probably close to 20 years to realize that what I was trying to do was evidence-based security, just I didn't know it <laughs> until uh, very recently. And um, so, no, I, I, don't, I don't think you can go anywhere yet and, and say, okay, I'm going to buy this book and I'm going to be start doing principle, uh, uh, sorry, evidence-based cybersecurity management. But there are certain things that you can do and you don't really need, uh, you know, to, to have a certificate for that. You can start modeling your organization and model your IT, understand how things depend on each other uh, and use that to be able to understand better your organization. Uh, you can use methods implemented in cycles, in other words, processes with, uh, that generate the data that lets you understand what is the performance of your uh, controls. Uh, you can perform and plan for tests that check if your success criteria is being met or not. And you can, um, and you can um, base all your decisions on, okay, is this working? instead of just going back to traditional concepts that very often are not not really producing a lot of value. I mean, if you think about that and you check, for example, and I, am, I learn a lot from checking aircraft accidents reports, uh, if you think about what are the root cause of severe cybersecurity incidents during the last 15 or 20 years, I don't think you are going to find even a single one that blames, oh, these guys had an incident because they didn't apply ISO 27001 properly. Or these guys had an incident because the risk assessment had an error. No, the, the, the root cause lies elsewhere, which indicates those places where the root cause lies, that's where the value has to be provided and is not being provided yet. A recent example being what happened with the, this Okta breach this very week. You know, it's not that Okta didn't do a risk assessment. I am sure they do risk assessments, and it's not that Okta was not compliant. They are very compliant with many things, but they still had an incident. So why are we still having these types of incidents? Because we don't have proper evidence-based cybersecurity management in place. Yeah. I would just build on that a bit too, and go over some of the methods I use, which are similar, is I like to take a threat-informed defense approach. I like to first identify the organizations that are likely to target my organization. Um, then develop a way to um, define metrics around what impact will an incident um, or the tactics and techniques that uh, first identify the tactics and techniques those threat groups like to use, create metrics around what the impact of those tactics and techniques could be, create um, metrics around how my controls can be effective at detecting or preventing those tactics and, te and techniques, 
and then finally um, create metrics around how my staff are going to respond to an incident involving those tactics and techniques. Then I like to develop a way to simulate the threat. I go ahead, run the simulation, collect the metrics, and then I use that to identify remediations that are made. And for me, the important thing is then not stopping at that point, but making the remediations and repeating the testing and then showing that the metrics have improved after the testing. Because if the control changes I made to my environment don't improve those metrics, then I'm not doing something right. I need to revisit what I'm doing. And I think that's a great way because I can empirically show the change I made to the environment is now making my staff respond better or my controls more effective at detection or prevention or whatever other metric I'm trying to improve. And I think that's a much better way to do security than a lot of the traditional ways of collecting metrics. If you look at traditional ways like uh, KPIs and KRIs, I think they're not without value. I think they're you know, definitely worthy goals, but I think they're often too high level. If we consider something like mean time to detection, it's really great to have a goal to have a better mean time to detection. But if you look at why most organizations don't detect an incident, it's not because they're not tracking mean time to detection, it's because they're not detecting all the proper things. So you need to kind of take the metric to a lower level first and ask the question, can I detect all the TTPs I need to detect? And I think that's where a lot of organizations fail is they're doing the metrics at too high a level and not taking a fine-grained enough approach to security. I think the more evidence-based methods force you to do that. Do you think that's because we've been told, well, we have to have metrics that tie back to the business, right? And we have to be able to talk about this in, in the business sense. Do you think that's why we've been taking it to the KPIs and using that as a metric for so long? So I think you still can use the KPIs and KRIs, but I think you need- You need to break it down you, more. Improve your detections, yes. You'll definitely improve your mean time to detection. But I think right now people are taking a too high level view. They're not taking the, that fine grained enough view. And I think the more evidence based approaches facilitate the more fine grained view that will also improve those higher level metrics. Yeah, I think there are too many KPIs that are a little bit like um, weather KPIs. I mean, it's interesting to be able to measure something, but is that measure really key to improving your security? Well, that's, that's what I was just going to ask is how do you determine if the metrics you're gathering actually matter like throughout the program, right? Because metrics you're collecting today for your program may not matter in six months to a year. So how do you determine if, if the ones that you're gathering right now actually matter? Oh, from my point of view, it's very simple. They, the, the things you measure have to be connected to the success criteria. Simple as that. So let's imagine, for example, you are uh, implementing metrics around patching and uh, you think, okay, how, how fast are we patching? Oh, we are patching in two days or we are patching in three days. Well, does it, does it actually make a difference? I don't know. It depends on your success criteria and your success criteria may be, okay, so I want to do a vulnerability assessment every three weeks and I want to see every three weeks fewer and fewer vulnerabilities. In that scenario where your success criteria is in the framework of weeks, to have patching in hours instead of days doesn't really make a difference. So, you know, it's perhaps not a great example, but metrics that you measure have to be connected to the success criteria of your controls. I agree. I think a metric has to be actionable. And I think, um, go back to the meantime to detection. Okay, it's great to have a goal of improving that, but is it really an actionable metric or is it too high level? Um, you have to look at the reasons why you're not detecting things. And um, I think a lot of the common metrics today are not as actionable as people think they are because they're a little too high level. And so, Chris, you mentioned for yours, if I'm understanding it correctly, that it needs to be actionable. The metrics need to be actionable in order to do it. So success criteria, which are going to be actionable anyway, maybe, should be, 
usually. Um, Must be. <laughs> yeah, and then actionable, and then that's going to in turn make sure the metrics. I, I think those are two really good ways of determining do the metrics or the metrics that you're currently using do they matter? Two pretty easy questions. Does it line up with my success criteria, and can I do anything with with this data? And I if, cannot tell you, Keith, how many times I've seen dashboards with number of viruses detected last month, and I stare at the bad dashboard and think. What a waste of real estate. What a waste of time. Why is anyone measuring this? Why am I watching this? Mm -hmm. There's no success criteria connected. There's no action you can take. It's just data. Empty data. data. Well, yeah, it just becomes sort of um, trivia at that point, right? So when we prepared for this session, there was a, a really good observation that was mentioned. And it was something along the lines of risk assessments aren't necessarily effective if they don't have the capability to cause an outage. And that's a that's a pretty strong commentary on how much we trust the way we're currently doing things, right? Basically, we're, we're saying, well, um, you know, if I check this box, then I'm safe. But the reality is, me checking that box doesn't mean that I'm, I'm safe. But me checking that box isn't going to cause an outage to tell me if I'm safe or not. Um, so, Vicente, I think you were the one that brought this up in, in our, our prep session. Can you tell me a little bit more about this? Well, uh, I, I think uh, that uh, tying back to what Christopher said earlier in, uh, in this session, uh, there's quite a few uh, things that we use in traditional based uh, cybersecurity management that don't give us the results that we believe they give. So periodic resets of complex passwords don't work. Uh, classifying things in high, medium, low uh, vulnerabilities that doesn't work either, and using confidentiality, integrity, and availability criteria for impact doesn't work either. And I am not going to elaborate in that. I'm going to jump directly into risk assessment because there are so many things that we believe that don't actually produce a, a, a benefit, that don't produce value. And the way I see it is that if risk assessment was really making our systems better, if it was making our companies better, what we would see is that there will be some incidents somewhere when someone would say, guys, this organization had a major incident because they made a mistake in the risk assessment. But I've never heard of such an incident ever. That means that doesn't matter. You can do a risk assessment or not. You can do it properly or poorly and that is not going to improve, improve your security significantly. Not only that, but if we uh, had effective risk assessment methods, what we would see over time is that people use methods that are more successful because they are simpler, because they are more effective. But instead of that, what we can see is that every year there are more and more risk assessment frameworks. I've seen myself 12 of them, and I, you know, every year there's a new one born. And it's not like methods that are 20 years old didn't have the complexity. A BIOS, uh, a French method, was very complex, very comprehensive, 20 years old, and now we have more and more methods, some of them simpler, some of them more complex, and you can compare between them, and there's literally no advantage. And why do people create additional methods, and why do people use any particular method? Because it doesn't matter. I think it also goes back to the accepted risk question. I think a lot of times we don't know what risks we're actually accepting until we take the time to measure it. 
like uh, to give another example is let's say we have a hypothetical public facing server and that server it's disclosed that there's a zero day vulnerability in it. Now I'm never going to argue you shouldn't patch, but if you begin to measure the server security, you might identify that maybe the big issue is not necessarily the it's missing the patch for the zero day. It might be that that server is not properly segmented or some other critical hardening or control is missing on that server because there's always going to be another zero day. And if you're missing some of the compensating controls that should be around that, that might actually be a bigger issue than the, the zero day itself. And um, I think, you know, we see a lot of those situations, like looking at the log4j, if you had proper egress filtering and some other controls around that server in place, it was very difficult to pull off that attack successfully, even if you were, um, you know, had the log4j vulnerability. And I, I think more and more shows that sometimes the... Uh, risk that's highlighted most in the media is not necessarily the, the biggest risk, but I think until we begin to measure some of that stuff, we really can't um, identify one way or another. And I think that's why we need to have more techniques to actually go and measure what the true risk is. Now, Chris, we've, you've, you brought up testing several times, I, um, and I think we even started this. That was kind of one of your main points, too, was like test, test. That's a big part of evidence-based cybersecurity management. I want to know a bit more about how, how you're doing that testing. Um, you know, obviously, we talked breach and attack simulation. Are you only using breach and attack simulation to do that sort of testing? What other tools or people or resources are you using for that? Uh, we also do internal red teaming as well. Um, I do like the breach and attack simulation because they do tend to keep um, subscriptions up to date with playbooks and things like that. And it also is a big burden on the team to have us develop every type of scenario. Right. Um, I, I think, too, the, there's value in breach and attack simulation because you can do continual validation. Like pen tests are nice, but um, you know, let's say even big companies who pen test often, it might be quarterly. It's not something you're doing on a you know, daily or weekly basis. Whereas the breach and attack simulation gives you more of the ability to validate continually. But, you know, we do a mix. We do, um, you know, pen tests periodically. We also do the breach and attack simulation and we have developed um, an internal red teaming. Uh, one of the things we've also been doing is I've been sending a large portion of my staff actually for, uh, you know, training and pen testing certifications like the OSCP, things like that, to get everybody thinking with that uh, attacker mindset. And to not just think um, defensively, but to think about how an attacker might actually choose to exploit the system and incorporate that into their defensive designs. That's that's great. Um, you're that's kind of injecting purple teaming into the culture of your team as well, yes. right? Um, to give to give both sides that mentality, give the red side that blue mentality, and give the blue side the red mentality. Have them work together to build some really cool things. That's that's great. Um, I, I love the way that you're you're implementing that. Um, yeah, and, and if you think about it, and I'm sorry for interrupting you, Keith. Yeah, no, 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 go ahead. <laughs> but but if, if you think about it, I believe right now there are not more than two, three, or perhaps four threat modeling methods. Why there are so few? Because they work. <laughs> so people don't go about creating new ones every week. Sure, sure. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, you know, in, in evidence-based cybersecurity management, Accountability is an important part of, of, of that, right? So because it's important, I want, I want to explain explicit to, explicitly to our audience, who do you hold accountable and how do you hold them accountable? So Vicente, I'll start with you. Well, I, I think that when you do something that is important and that provides value, uh, when that happens, you have a good understanding of who are the clients, who are the people in the organization who are receiving the value that you generate. And when you are doing that, you put yourself in a position where you can get it wrong. 
And, and to give you trivial examples that have nothing to do with cybersecurity, a hairdresser can do a really horrible haircut, or a doctor can give you the wrong diagnosis. But uh, um, um, a fortune teller, you know, they can say whatever, and as long as you go back home happy, you know, it's not going to create a particular harm. So what happens is that if you want to really provide value, you have to put yourself in the position where you can make a mistake. So you have to, to think, okay, for example, and i give you a simple example. I have 200 vulnerabilities communicated to me, and am I going to just hand them over to the IT team? You know, like that, forward? Or am I going to sit and think, okay, which are the four that I believe are the most important, and because I understand their workload, are they one, the four that I'm going to communicate? Then you do that, and you're putting yourself in the position of, well, you know, what if I make a mistake? What if I choose the wrong four, and they should have fixed a different one? But if you look at it from the point of view of the client, what would you prefer when you are very busy? For someone to dump on you 200 things that you are not a professional, you don't know how to evaluate, you don't know how to prioritize, or someone who tells you, guys, I understand your workload, and these are the four things that are important to you. So, you know, and this, this happens all the time. You have to put yourself in a position where you understand that it's your job to determine what is the best thing to do and put yourself in the position of the person who has to perform, you know, whatever works, fixes, or modifications have to be performed in order to improve security. You cannot... Um, you cannot demand security uh, like a prophet. You know, you have to be the person who's providing value, which means you have to put yourself in the position where you can actually have to say, well, you know, guys, I made a mistake. So you have to hold yourself accountable, but you also have to be comfortable admitting to making mistakes because you're probably going to make a lot of them. When you're dealing with data, what I found is a lot of the times it's, you know, OK, I'm going to I'm going to make a hypothesis. I'm going to make a guess. Then I'm going to let the data tell tell me whether I'm right or wrong. So you have to be prepared and be willing to accept that you're wrong a lot of the time and just be able to course correct. And I think that plays into accountability as well. Oh, certainly. And, and you have to think that continuous improvement, which is an essential part of evidence-based cybersecurity management, is about, yes, I make mistakes, but I don't make the same mistake twice, mm -hmm. which means, okay, you make a mistake, you learn from it, and then you improve. Yeah. So to make a mistake is part of Chris, um, so who who do you hold accountable for for cybersecurity, evidence based cybersecurity uh, in in your program? Is obviously you hold yourself accountable, I'm sure. And are there certain people on your team? How do you, how do you make how do you make people accountable? I guess is what I'm asking for different actions at different levels. I think with healthcare, it's an interesting question because in healthcare, the value of a lot of this stuff is actually a patient safety value. Um, one of the things is, is any cyber attack against a healthcare system has the potential to bring systems down. And when systems go down, that increases the chance of an adverse outcome for patients. So it really is an issue of patient safety. And one of the things I like to do is try to bridge the gap with cybersecurity, working with other departments to get the point across that we're all working towards a, a common goal. And I think it's um, that, you know, doctors and nurses, as well as IT security are actually on the same side. Um, we try not to be the department of no, but try to facilitate getting departments to do things in a secure way, because at the end of the day, we all value that same goal of keeping the, the patient safe. And I think that's you know very important messaging for within healthcare. I think to kind of extend on that and just go back to the question of risk before, 
I think it's also interesting because I think one of the failings in healthcare cybersecurity up until very recently is when a lot of healthcare cybersecurity practitioners looked at risk, they considered the traditional security view of risk, but never really factored in the, the patient safety risk to things. So for example, if you consider something like um, two CAT scan machines, you have one in an offsite um, you know, location that does outpatient care. And if that CAT scan machine goes down, it might not be a big deal because yeah, it's an inconvenience to reschedule a few patients, but that's it. That same CT machine in an emergency room setting, and now the hospital has to go on diversion because you can't triage certain types of patients and it becomes a, a huge issue. And I think um, hospitals need to begin to approach the equation by looking at risk in that context as well, because that tells me as a security professional, I should spend more resources securing um, the CT machine in the emergency room than I should at that outpatient site. And I think those kind of decisions increasingly need to be factored into healthcare. I think um, the current risk models for quantifying risk in healthcare often miss that component. And um, I think that's a great way to show value and accountability in healthcare is to consider the clinical aspects as well as the security. So let me, let me ask this, uh, since you two have both practiced this evidence-based cybersecurity management, um, and you've, you've lived through a time where you didn't practice it. Which one is easier when you're dealing with other business units? If I'm set up to do evidence-based cybersecurity management, or I'm set up to do kind of traditional cybersecurity management, when I go to get budget or I try and implement new policy or work with, with another team or whatever, which one works better? Does cybersecurity, uh, does evidence-based cybersecurity management actually hold up and allow me to get things done easier as, as a security leader? Hands down, it's so much easier. People think it so much uh, when you can speak in their own language and understand what they need in their own terms. It makes an enormous difference. And uh, to give one a small example would be, uh, you know, when working with uh, teams uh, that fix uh, flaws in uh, web, uh, web applications. If you use traditional based uh, cybersecurity, what you do is you, you get a list of vulnerabilities that are rated high, medium, low. You send them the list and you tell them, guys, fix everything. And that initiates the discussion or, is this really high? I don't know. Is this really low? Is this really medium? And if you change the conversation and you don't tell them what is high, medium, low, because it doesn't matter. And the conversation is, guys, these few things are very important. When are we going to fix them? Mm -hmm and take high, medium, low out of the conversation, that conversation they think because that's something they can work with and you're not giving them information that they don't need. Or for example, if you are doing any kind of analysis and you are using confidentiality, integrity, availability, and you start explaining those concepts to the users, I mean, the faces you get when you start explaining these concepts are, you know, quite something. Why? Because they are not the concepts they use or the concepts they need. Uh, if I want to know if a certain system, uh, how to secure it, I want to understand who are the people who should use it and the people who should not use it. What does have to do with confidentiality? I don't know and I don't care. But if I have the conversation with the owner, who should be users of the system and who should not be able to do anything with the system, that's when we can agree on what is success and what is an incident. So the conversation is absolutely different when you are using evidence-based uh, cybersecurity management and so, so much easier and so much, um, uh, I think everyone is more aligned and it's easier to understand if you are providing value and if you are being successful. I would definitely agree with that. I think it, it makes it easier. 
um, if you look at like a lot of like traditional metrics to go back to like uh, Vicente's um, you know dashboard story before with the number of viruses, no one really cares if my spam filter or something else you know blocked five thousand malicious attachments or whatever it happens to be you know for a given period of time. It's a kind of useless metric. Whereas if I can take the evidence-based cybersecurity and show that I ran the RIC playbook and after I made these changes, I'm now 20% more likely to you know, resist the attack or um, you know, I'm blocking now 20% more of the TTPs they'd like to use. It's something that you know, clearly shows improvement. And I think it makes it easier to justify continued security investment because you can show the efficacy of the changes that you've already made to the environment. And it gives you a way to estimate the continued efficacy improvements that these additional controls will make. Yeah, it, it, from from the conversation that we've had today on evidence-based cybersecurity management, that it really does seem like it helps tie everything together from a business aspect, right? I know, um, I don't know if it's as much of a problem now as it used to be, but I remember even as soon as, you know, three or five years ago where CISOs were having a hard time speaking the language of business to get what they needed. Um, but it, it sounds from the conversation that we've had today that evidence-based cybersecurity management really kind of helps with that, right? Because we're aligning more, more to the business and we're, we're coming with data and facts and going, you know, not only does this align to the business, here are the metrics that I have on it that, that prove that it's, it's working or not working. Uh, and I tested it to validate that too. Um, I, I think when it, when it comes to something where, or an industry where there's so many unknowns, it's good to see this sort of structure wrapped around it where we're being more scientific to try and figure out those unknowns. Now, another good point that came up when we were preparing for this session, and uh, Chris, I believe it was, it was a point that you brought up and I really liked it. And it was, uh, you said that testing gives you knowledge you won't gain from documentation. I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit more about this? Sure. It's it's definitely true that when you, you test stuff, you're going to discover all kinds of things that you thought might have worked, but but didn't. And um, I can think of, you know, every, the reality is every security product has imperfections. There's no security product out there that's a panacea. They all have their, you know, weaknesses. And I think it's important that businesses test them. They know what those weaknesses are so they can put in other compensating controls or hardening measures to address, you know, what those weaknesses are. Um, there's no security solution that's perfect and there's probably never going to be. And that's, you know, fine, but you need to know how the various solutions that you have deployed are imperfect so you can do something to account for that. And, um, you know, I think, I think a lot of times too, as an industry, we have too much of a focus on tools alone. I think we want to deploy some fancy, you know, EDR or firewall or some other security product and assume that's going to take care of all our needs. And I think that's the fatal flaw a lot of organizations make. Um, I can pretty much guarantee that 100% of breach companies probably ran antivirus. Um, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't run antivirus, but we have to acknowledge that all of these tactics and I mean, all of these tools we use have weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And what are we doing to discover what those weaknesses are? And what are we doing to compensate for whatever those weaknesses and whatever products that we use happen to be? That's interesting. Uh, and I, we even talked about that. I think we've talked about it through the whole conversation too, about how testing has helped you realize uh, risks that you were accepting that you weren't necessarily aware that you were accepting because of testing. Again, highlighting that that's something you're not going to get in documentation. Some tool, you know, some user manual or user guide for a new EDR isn't going to tell you, well, by doing this, you're also potentially overlooking this risk, you know, that sort of thing. Um, no, I can give a concrete example too. Like uh, for a lot of the EDRs, they have a lot of controls around PowerShell. 
they do a pretty good job of detecting malicious PowerShell scripts. What a number of the EDRs tend to fail on if I actually test is uh, PowerShell 2 fallback attacks because the logging and a lot of the security controls in PowerShell 2, which ships in Windows 10 for legacy support, um, it's harder for some of the EDRs to detect than it is if you're using the newer PowerShell 5. So one of the things we did, for example, is we noticed that there was a problem with um, picking up those techniques and we disabled PowerShell 2 on all of our Windows you know, 10 desktops to compensate for that you know, lack of detection because it was kind of hit or miss and um, we had a way to compensate for that and now we're in a much better position because of that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That, that's, a, that's a great anecdote. We're coming up near the end of our session here. I, I wanna make sure that, that you guys have been able to, to fully present what, what you believe evidence-based cybersecurity management to be and share that knowledge with other people. You know, we're really, we're, I'm hoping what comes out of this session is other people have at least now heard of evidence-based cybersecurity management. They go, well, I'm gonna at least look into this some more. So I'm going to ask each of you, and Vicente, I'll start with you. What, was there anything that we left out of the session that you think is important for our audience to know about evidence-based cybersecurity management? Evidence-based cybersecurity management is about applying the scientific method to cybersecurity management, which means learn lessons from others and teach lessons. So this is something that will be part of real uh, evidence-based cybersecurity management because uh, only by sharing this knowledge, we will have exponential improvement. And Chris, same question for you. What, what do you want our audience to know about evidence-based cybersecurity management that maybe we didn't hit on today or didn't hit on hard enough? I think it's uh, you know, quite simply to sum it up is you shouldn't never assume you're secure. You need to test and validate and taking more evidence-based approaches, actually taking the time to actually prove some of the security controls you have are actually doing the job that you think they do, whether it's due to a um, you know, lack of a feature in a certain tool or a misconfiguration or something else. Uh, nothing's ever deployed perfectly, and it's much better to try to attempt to find that yourself that, rather than have an attacker point it out for you. Sure. Well, thank you. Yeah, not only that, but... And not only that, but to test periodically, because the, val the, the validity of the test is only, you know, only a certain time, perhaps a year, and then you have to test right. again. Yeah, yeah, the, the Sorry. Testing, isn't, testing is point in time to an extent. I mean, you can, you can get some time out of it, but things change. We live in a dynamic, you know, technology is dynamic. We live in dynamic networks. We, live, we have dynamic enterprises. It makes sense, yeah, to, to test regularly. Well, thank both of you for joining us for this session. Um, thank our audience for joining us as well. Um, I hope everybody learned a little bit more about evidence-based cybersecurity management. I did. Um, again, Chris Vicente, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and to our audience, I hope you're enjoying Purple Hats, uh, and I hope you enjoy your next session. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day.